The Boscombe Valley Mystery by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Dramatised by Grant Eustace. With Roy Marsden as Sherlock Holmes and John Moffat as Dr. Watson. My wife and I were seated at breakfast when that telegram arrived. It was from Sherlock Holmes. Watson, have you a couple of days to spare? Have just been wired for from the west of England in connection with the Boscombe Valley tragedy. Shall be glad if you will come with me. Air and scenery perfect. Lee Paddington by the 11.15. It took only a little encouragement from my wife for me to pack a bag and be on my way. At Paddington, I found Holmes in his long grey travelling cloak, pacing up and down the platform. It's really very good of you to come, Watson. It makes a considerable difference to me having someone with me on whom I can thoroughly rely. Local aid is always either worthless or else biased. Well, I'm delighted to be back on a case with you. Well, then let us hope it fulfills its promise. Oh, those two corner seats should serve us admirably. Ah. Have you heard anything of the case? No, not a word. I've not seen a paper for some days. Mm, I've brought all the recent ones. It seems to be one of those simple cases which are so extremely difficult. Mm, that sounds a little paradoxical. Uh, but it is profoundly true. Singularity is almost invariably a clue. The more featureless and commonplace a crime, the more difficult it is to bring home. But in this case, they have established a serious case against the son of a murdered man. It, it is a murder, then? Well, it is conjectured to be, sir. I shall take nothing for granted until I have the opportunity of looking personally into it. Let me explain the state of things to you as far as I've been able to understand it. The case concerned two families from Australia who had settled in the country district of Boscombe Valley, near Ross, in Herefordshire. John Turner, by all accounts a wealthy man, had known Charles McCarthy in Australia, and remained on good terms with him, even though McCarthy had become his tenant. Both men were widowers, although McCarthy had a son of about 18 and Turner a daughter of the same age. That is as much as I've been able to gather about the families. Now, for the facts. On Monday last, McCarthy left his house at Hatherley about three in the afternoon and walked down to the Boscombe Pool, which is a small lake. He said he had an appointment of importance to keep at three. But did he say with whom? If he had, it is unlikely we would need to make our journey. From that appointment, he never came back alive. I see. Two witnesses saw McCarthy on the way from his house to the pool, and one of them saw the son, James McCarthy, carrying a gun and going the same way. Mm. A third witness shortly afterwards saw a violent argument between father and son beside the pool. Mm. The violence of it so frightened her, indeed, of being only 14, uh, that she ran home. She'd scarcely arrived there before young McCarthy came running up to say he had found his father dead in the wood. Well, I see why you say the case against him is serious. Oh, there's worse to come. His right hand and sleeve was stained with blood. Had his father been shot? Oh, no, no, the head had been beaten in by repeated blows of some heavy and blunt instrument. Injuries which might uh, very well have been inflicted by the butt end of the gun. Indeed. Mm. And the gun was found lying on the grass within a few paces of the body. Mm. 
Under these circumstances, the young man was immediately arrested and his case referred to the next assizes. I could hardly imagine a more damning case. If ever circumstantial evidence pointed to a criminal, it does so here. Oh, circumstantial evidence is a very tricky thing, Watson. It may seem to point to one thing, but if you shift your point of view a little, you may find it pointing in an equally uncompromising manner to something entirely different. But it is very possible that the young man is indeed the culprit. It is. Uh, but there are several people who believe in his innocence, and not least Miss Alice Turner, the daughter of the landowner. Mm. Lestrade has been retained to work out the case in the interest of young McCarthy. And Lestrade, no doubt rather puzzled, has referred it to you. <laughs> yes, hence we are flying westward at 50 miles an hour instead of quietly digesting our breakfast at home. I am afraid that the facts are so obvious that you will find little credit to be gained out of this case. Oh, there's nothing more deceptive than an obvious fact. Yeah, besides, we may chance to hit upon some obvious facts which may have been by no means obvious to Lestrade. You know me too well to think I am boasting when I say that I shall either confirm or destroy his theory by means he is quite incapable of employing. <laughs> uh, to take the first example to hand, I clearly perceive that in your bedroom the window is upon the right-hand side. Mm -hmm. And yet I question whether Lestrade would have noted even that. Well, I hope so. How on earth do you know that? Oh, my dear fellow, I know you well. In this season you've shaved by the sunlight. But since your shaving is less and less complete as we get farther back on the left side mm. until it becomes positively slovenly as we get mm. round the angle of the jaw, it is surely very clear that that side is less well illuminated than the other. Oh, now, now, there is another point of interest. Oh, and what's that? You see, when James McCarthy was arrested, he remarked that he was not surprised to hear it and that it was no more than his just desert. Uh, a confession? No. For it was followed by a protestation of innocence. Well, coming on the top of such a damning series of events, it was at least a most suspicious remark. Mm, on the contrary, it is the brightest rift which I can at present see in the clouds. Oh? His frank acceptance of the situation marks him as either an innocent man or else a man of considerable self-restraint and firmness. And his remark about his desert? It was not unnatural if you consider that he had that day so far forgotten his filial duty as to argue with his father to such an extent that he threatened to strike him. Or so he did, according to the little girl whose evidence is so important. Well, many men have been hanged on far slighter evidence. So they have, and many men have been wrongfully hanged. What is the young man's account of the matter? Not very encouraging to his supporters. You, uh, you may read it for yourself. Holmes picked out a copy of the local Herefordshire paper and passed it to me, pointing out to me the paragraphs that contained James McCarthy's statement. I settled myself down in the corner of the carriage to read it carefully. I had been away from home for three days, in Bristol, and had only just returned on the morning of last Monday. My father was absent from home at the time of my arrival, so I took my gun and strolled in the direction of the Boscombe Pool with the intention of visiting the rabbit warren on the other side of it. Then I heard a cry of cooey, which was a usual signal between my father and myself. So I hurried forward and found him by the pool. He appeared to be much surprised to find me there. The conversation that ensued led to high words and could have led to blows. So I left him. McCarthy's statement went on to say that he had gone no more than another 150 yards before he heard a terrible cry, which caused him to rush back again. He found his father terribly injured. 
he held him in his arms, which was his explanation for the fresh blood seen by the witness. But his father expired shortly afterwards. Then the coroner asked him if his father had said anything before he died. He mumbled a few words, but I could only catch some allusion to a rat. It, it conveyed no meaning to me. I thought he was delirious. The coroner then asked a question which placed McCarthy in a bad light. What had he and his father quarrelled about? It is really impossible for me to tell you. I can assure you that it has nothing to do with the sad tragedy that followed. The coroner pressed him, but he refused to answer. The next question was equally damning, for McCarthy was asked how it was the common signal between father and son had been used before the father even knew his son was back from Bristol. I... I'm afraid I do not know at all. Have you reached the part about the coat yet, Boston? Coat? Uh, no, not yet. Oh, then, then I won't interrupt you. Holmes was referring to the last part of McCarthy's evidence. I have a vague impression that as I ran forward towards my father, something lay upon the ground to the left of me. It seemed to be something grey in colour, a coat of some sort, or, or a plaid, perhaps. When I rose from my father, I looked round for it, but it was gone. It must have been removed when my back was towards it. I see, Holmes, that the coroner drew attention to the father having signalled to his son before seeing him, the son's refusal to give details of the conversation with his father, and his singular account of his father's dying words. They are all, as he remarks, very much against the son. Mm. Both you and the coroner have been at some pains to single out the very strongest points in the young man's favour. Really? Don't you see that you alternately give him credit for having too little imagination uh, for not inventing a plausible cause for the quarrel, and too much, I mean, with his outre references to a rat in a vanishing cloth? No, I shall approach this case from the point of view that what this young man says is true, and we shall see whether that hypothesis will lead us. It was nearly four o'clock when we reached Ross. Lestrade met us, and with him we drove to the Hereford Arms, where a room had already been engaged for us. You have no doubt formed your conclusions from the newspapers, Mr. Holmes. The case is as plain as a pikestaff, and the more one goes into it, the plainer it becomes. Still, one can't refuse a lady. Miss Turner had heard of you and would have your opinion. Though I repeatedly told her there was nothing which you could do which I had not done already. Quite so. Before long, Alice Turner joined us. All thought of natural reserve lost in her overpowering excitement and concern. Oh, Mr. Holmes, I'm so glad that you have come. I have driven down to tell you so. Miss Turner? I know James didn't do it. And want you to start upon your work knowing it too. Such a charge as murder is absurd to anyone who really knows him. I hope we may clear him, Miss Turner. <sighs> you may rely upon my doing all that I can. But you have read the evidence. Do you not yourself think he is innocent? Yeah, I think that it is very probable. <clears throat> there now, you hear. He gives me hope. I am afraid that my colleague has been a little quick in forming his conclusions, Miss... But he is right. James never did it. And about the quarrel with his father, I'm sure the reason why he would not speak of it was because I was concerned in it. In what way? Mr. McCarthy was very anxious that there should be a marriage between us. 
James and I have always loved each other as brother and sister, but he is young and naturally does not wish to marry yet. So there were quarrels between him and his father. I'm sure this was one. And is your father in favour of such a union? No, he was averse to it also. I see. Mm. May I call on your father tomorrow? Oh, I'm afraid the doctor won't allow it. This has broken poor father down completely and he has taken to his bed. Mr. McCarthy was the only man alive who had known Dad in the old days in Victoria. Ah, in Victoria. That is important. Yes, at the mines. Quite so. The gold mines where, as I understand, Mr. Turner made his money. That's right. I must go home now, for Dad is very ill and he misses me if I leave him. You will tell me if you have any news tomorrow. I will. Goodbye, then. And God bless you in your undertaking. Goodbye. I am ashamed of you, Mr. Holmes. Why should you raise up hopes which you are bound to disappoint? I think I can see my way to clearing James McCarthy. What? Have you an order to see him in prison? Uh, yes, but only for you and me, I'm afraid. Hmm. I wasn't expecting Dr. Watson. Yes. Uh, we still have time to take a train to Hereford and see him tonight? Ample time. Uh, then let us do so. Mm -hmm. uh, Watson, I fear that you will find it very slow, but I shall only be away a couple of hours. Oh. While Holmes was away, I tried to put myself in his shoes and identify why every fresh fact seemed to strengthen his conviction of young McCarthy's innocence. I called for a copy of the weekly county paper, which contained a verbatim account of the inquest. As I read the surgeon's deposition about the nature of the dead man's injuries, I marked the spot upon my own head. Now, clearly, such a blow must have been struck from behind. That was to some extent in favour of the accused, as when quarrelling he had been seen face to face with his father. But what could the reference to the rat mean? It could not be delirium. A man dying from a sudden blow does not commonly become delirious. And then the incident of the grey cloth. What a tissue of mysteries and improbabilities the whole thing was. It was late before Holmes returned. He came alone, for Lestrade was in other lodgings. The glass still keeps high. It is of importance that it should not rain before we are able to go over the ground in the daylight. And now what did you learn from young McCarthy? Nothing. I am convinced he is as puzzled as everyone else. Well, I wonder at his taste if he is averse to a marriage with so charming a young lady as Miss Turner. Ah, well, thereby hangs a rather painful tale. He is madly in love with her. But some two years ago, before he really knew her, the idiot got into the clutches of a barmaid in Bristol mm. and married her at the register office. Did his father know? No, no, he would have thrown him over if he had. But you see why the arguments got bitter. Now, James would have liked to do what his father was suggesting. Exactly. But something important arises from this. Which is? James was with his barmaid wife in Bristol, and his father did not know where he was. So since the father had an appointment with someone by the pool, that someone could not have been his son. Ah. Similarly, the call of Cooey could not be intended for the son whom he did not know was there. Then James is innocent. Certainly. They've not yet proven so. Still, he has the consolation of knowing that he's not married either. Well, but uh, I thought you said... Oh, yes. The barmaid, hearing he was in trouble, has thrown him over, saying that in any case, she already has a husband. Sure. Yes. In the Bermuda dockyard. Good Lord. <laughs>
as though there's really no tie between them. Now, let us get some well-earned rest before the demands of the morrow. Yes. The morning broke bright and cloudless. At nine o'clock, Lestrade called for us with the carriage, and we set off for the Boscombe Pool. There is serious news. Mr. Turner is so ill, his life is despaired of. An elderly man, I presume? Mm, and in failing health for some time. He was an old friend of McCarthy's and a great benefactor to him, for he gave him Hatherley Farm rent-free, I hear. Really? Illustrate, doesn't it strike you as a little singular that this McCarthy, who has so little and was under such obligations to Turner, should still talk about marrying his son to the heiress to the estate, and in such a cocksure manner? Hmm? What, do you not deduce something from that? Oh, we have got to the deductions, have we? I find it quite hard enough to tackle the facts, Mr. Holmes, without flying away after theories and fancies. Well, you are right. You do find it very hard to tackle the facts. <laughs> When we got to the Boscombe Pool, Lestrade showed us the exact spot at which the body had been found, and indeed so moist was the ground that I could plainly see the traces which had been left by the fall of the stricken man. To Holmes, as I could see by his eager face and peering eyes, very many other things were to be read upon the trampled grass. He ran round like a dog who was picking up a scent. What did you go into the pool for? Uh, I thought there might be some weapon or other... How on earth did you oh, know? Oh, ta 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 no time. That left foot of yours with the inward twist is all over the place. A mole could trace it. Oh. oh, how simple it would have been had I been here before they came, like a herd of buffalo and wallowed all over it. Here is the party with the lodge keeper. Well, these are young McCarthy's feet. Uh, then his father's. Now, what are we here? Tiptoes square to quite unusual boots. Well, they come, they, they go, they... They come again. Of course, that was for the cloak. Now, where are these... Holmes ran ahead of us, following the track he had found, until he reached a place where he lay down for a long time examining the ground, and then picking up a jagged stone and what looked to me like dust. It has been a case of considerable interest. I shall just leave a note at the lodge, and then we can be on our way back to Ross. This stone I picked up may interest you, Lestrade. The murder was done with it. What? I see no marks. There are none. How do you know, then? The grass was growing under it. It had only lain there a few days. There was no sign of a place whence it had been taken, and it corresponds with the injuries. Oh. And the murderer? As a tall man, left-handed, limps with the right leg, wears thick-soled shooting boots and a grey cloak. Smokes Indian cigars, uses a cigar holder, and carries a blunt penknife in his pocket. Oh, Mr. Holmes. <laughs> there are several other indications, but these may be enough to aid us in our search. I'm afraid I am still a sceptic. Well, we shall see. I shall probably return to London by the evening train. And leave your case unfinished? No, oh, unfinished. Who was the criminal, then? The gentleman I described. I am a practical man, Mr. Holmes. I really cannot undertake to go about the country looking for a left-handed gentleman with a game leg. <laughs> all right, all right. I have given you the chance. I shall drop you a line before I leave. Having left the strayed at his rooms, we drove to our hotel, where we found lunch on the table. After we had eaten, we returned to discussing the case. It was obvious that the call of Cooey was not meant for the sun. 
but it is a distinctly Australian cry, so there is a strong presumption that the person whom McCarthy expected to meet was from Australia. Ah, and the rat? Uh, I wired to Bristol last night for a map of the colony of Victoria. Now, look, if I put my hand over that part, what do you read? A rat. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I remove my hand... Ballarat. Quite so. The last word the man uttered, of which the son only heard the last two syllables. He was trying to say the name of the murderer, so-and-so, from Ballarat. Wonderful. Obvious. So with the evidence of the grey cloak, we already know a good deal. And he must be someone at home in the district, for strangers would be noticed by the farm or the estate. Correct. Uh, then comes our expedition of today. You know my methods. By an examination of the ground, I gained the trifling details which I gave to that imbecile Lestrade as to the personality of the criminal. Yes, now I understood some of it, but the, uh, the left-handedness... The left-handedness? Oh, well, you read the medical report yourself. The blow was struck from immediately behind, but on the left side, as only a left-handed man could do it. And what about the Indian cigar? He had stood behind that tree and smoked during the interview between father and son. Ah, so that was ash I saw you pick up. Correct. As you know, I have devoted some attention to the subject. It was from an Indian cigar of the variety that are rolled in Rotterdam. I had been about to suggest to Holmes the name to whom this weight of evidence was pointing, when Mr. John Turner was ushered in. His face was ashen white, and it was clear to me that he was in the grip of some deadly disease. And he walked with a slight limp. Well, pretty down. On the sofa. The lodge keeper brought me your note. Why did you wish to see me? Because I know all about McCarthy. God help me. But I would not have let the young man come to harm. I give you my word that I would have spoken out if it went against him at the assizes. I'm glad to hear you say so. I would have spoken now had it not been for my dear girl. It would break her heart to hear that I'm arrested. She may not come to that. I am no official agent, but young McCarthy must be got off. I am a dying man. I have had diabetes for years. My doctor says it is a question whether I shall live a month. Yet I would rather die under my own roof than in jail. Well, just tell us the truth and we will write it down for you to sign. I promise you I shall not use it unless it is absolutely needed. It has been a long time in the acting, but it will not take me long to tell. You didn't know the dead man, McCarthy. He was a devil incarnate. I tell you that. God keep you out of the clutches of such a man as he. His grip has been upon me these twenty years, and he has blasted my life. When I first went to Australia... It was a vivid story that began to unfold. How Turner had fallen into bad company in Australia and become a highway robber known by the name of Black Jack of Ballarat. How one day his gang had attacked a gold convoy of which McCarthy was the driver. How Turner had brought his stolen wealth back to England and settled down. And how one day in London he had come face to face with McCarthy, who had spent his time tracking him down, and who now demanded a high price. He and his son lived rent-free off my land ever since. There was no rest for me, no peace, no forgetfulness. Turn where I would, there was his cunning, grinning face at my elbow. And then it became worse. 
for he wanted my Alice to marry his son. I refused. McCarthy threatened. I braved him to do his worst. We were to meet at the pool to discuss it. But as we had heard, without understanding the true consequence, it was his son whom McCarthy first met. Standing listening to their conversation, Turner resolved that he had to silence the threat once and for all. I did it, Mr. Holmes. I would do it again, too, if it prevented my girl from being entangled in the same meshes which held me. Well, it's not for me to judge you. I pray we may never be exposed to such a temptation. Yes. I pray not, sir. And what do you intend to do with my confession? In view of your health, nothing. I will keep it, and if McCarthy's condemned, I shall be forced to use it. If not, it shall never be seen by mortal eye. And it never was. James McCarthy was acquitted at the Assizes on the strength of a number of objections submitted to the defending counsel by Sherlock Holmes. Old Turner lived for seven months after our interview, but is now dead. And there is every prospect that the son and daughter may come to live happily together in ignorance of the black cloud that rests upon their past. In The Boscombe Valley Mystery by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Roy Marsden played Sherlock Holmes, John Moffat, Dr. Watson, Steve Hodson, Inspector Lestrade, Hayden Wood, James McCarthy, Sean Barrett, John Turner, and Betsy Blatchley, Alice. The Boscombe Valley Mystery was dramatised by Grant Eustace and directed by Michael Bartlett for Daedalus Productions. Okay, so we have the car payment, the rent, utilities, and the repair bill. Ah, <sighs> what should we do? I know. I'm going to CashNetUSA.com. I can apply in minutes, get an instant decision, and if approved, we could have the money in our account as soon as the same business day. When you need money fast, be the hero. Go to CashNetUSA.com to apply for the money you need now. The exact timing as to when your loan funds will be available will be determined by your banking institution.